Hello, my friends, and welcome back to Idle Chatter. I'm Ray Bohax, the Hot Rod Farmer, coming to you from Cat Swamp Road, uh, raining, Cat Sw- rainy Cat Swamp Road, with the uh, remnants of, I guess, Tropical Storm Ida coming up here. And a very good friend of mine's name, last name is Ida, and I know also uh, it is a... Uh, a woman's name also first name right so we have a couple of, we have actually a customer at the farm stand whose name is ida and growing up my dad had a friend mr pagano john pagano god rest his soul and his wife's name was ida so i guess this is hurricane ida i remember mr pagano used to always buy chrysler products he was a mopar man and he uh, had a, a 1968 charger that when he passed away we ended up buying it for my sister and my sister took it away to uh to school in kansas at kansas medical university but anyway uh, it was a th- strippo strippo uh, dodge charger it had a 318 so it wasn't really strippo because you could have gotten a slant six and that was a 318 uh, two barrel obviously with a 904 automatic transmission no radio power steering the only option manual drum brakes crank windows it was that cream color i forgot what color code chrysler called that with a black vinyl top and red opposing that leather like i say leather vinyl red bucket seats and i guess the um, the floor mounted shifter may have been an option and that was a good running car that 318 two barrel and that a904 automatic it ran great and um, my sister took it out to kansas to school and she took it up to her job up as a paramedic up in Tonawanda, New York, outside of Buffalo. And uh, it rotted all out. And she, she, it kept going through the police department. They would buy it up. Her friends would buy it up there as a beater car or a winter car, they used to call it. And the thing so, soldiered on for, I think, about more than 20 years, for about 25 years. There was nothing left to it but a, uh, a shell. But that A904 and that two-barrel 318 kept kept running never failed to start ran great so uh, yeah i remember that car very very well when, when we bought that car as a kid then mr pagano never washed it it was it was so ingrained with dirt that i couldn't even compound that i had to i, I brilloed the whole car and then buffed it out so uh, crazy stuff back then right the, couldn't do that to the paint today but uh i just wanted to give you an update thank god by god's grace my sister is doing very very well she came home and uh, she's going to have some rehab at home, and her numbers are all up, and uh, it was truly a miracle because she went from right from intensive care to one day or a day and a half in a step-down unit, and then they kicked her out of there. So she is home back there and, God willing, recovering, and uh, that's good. And I also want to uh, apologize for, for Allie, the kitten, Ali Baba, the kitten. She's sleeping right now, so hopefully I could get through this show without Allie uh, coming on board and meowing into the microphone and stepping on the soundboard. So I hope that uh, I was grateful. So thank God she's sleeping, right? So at the moment. And Don, my cat Donald, the uh, the farm cat, my Donald, I call him, I call him farm cat, but he's uh, he's inside, outside cat. And uh, he's, uh, well, I guess he's growing used to Allie. I don't know uh uh, hopefully god willing that works out he's not uh, he's jealous of her so if ali comes over to me he gets very jealous which i get upset over because i don't want donald he's the number one cat he's top cat here so but the little kitten she's got some uh 
they would say in New York City that Jewish people would say chutzpah. So our farm is only 65 miles from New York, so we get influenced by that culture. So chutzpah, she's a pushy little thing, but she's cute as a button and a good little girl, and hopefully, God willing, she has a wonderful life here with Donald. But what I want to do is, before we get into today's show, I need to give some shout-outs. And the first shout-out goes to Mr. Gene Stow, and he is from Shreveport, Louisiana. And God willing, he's doing all right down there. I, I, I understand Louisiana got got hit so hard uh, last week with the hurricane. So um, hopefully he's doing all right and the rest of the people there, our prayers and thoughts are with them. But he listens from Shreveport and he has a couple of International Harvester 1086 tractors. And he wants me to do a show on why he's having so much trouble having them shift. So I put that on the list of things to do. It probably would not be. He does listen to the Sirius radio show, Farm Machinery Digest, on Sirius XM. So I told him that I probably would not do it on that show because of the time constraint or answer his letter on that show. I said it's going to probably be on the Idle Chatter podcast because there is no time constraint. So um, so a big Cat Swamp Road shout out to Mr. Gene Stow. And uh, welcome, welcome aboard, sir. And thank you so much for listening down in Louisiana. I think that's how they say it down there. Us Northerners go Louisiana, but I think they, they, they slur it a little bit. And then I have a, uh, a note here from Mike, Michael Pearson, and he is in, uh, I got the other paper here. He is in Charlotte, like my wife, Charlotte Courthouse, Virginia. And Mike is a truck, he's a truck driver, and he sent me a letter. He also listens through Sirius XM. And he was disappointed that the show was only a half hour. So I said, listen on Sirius, but come over to the podcast. I don't chatter because we have no time constraint. And he was a former uh, uh, car talk listener, those guys up in Massachusetts. I think the one guy's name was Ray. He was a big fan of them. And he and I communicated with uh, with Mike and asked him what kind of truck he drove and whether he was a company driver or a uh, owner-operator or what have you. And he drives for Walmart. And uh, he drives a 2017 Peterbilt 379 with a, with a Cummins in it and an Eaton Fuller 10-speed. I guess that should be a Road Ranger if it's Eaton transmission. He says that they uh, we that they that they they pull very heavy. That they get those trucks loaded, and more than 80% of the time they are loaded. But he's averaging 7.8 miles per gallon. And interestingly enough, Walmart must have Walmart adds power service, the diesel fuel additive, to every load of fuel dropped at the in the tanks in our yard. So he says. So uh, he found it interesting. He found it interesting that. Uh, he found it, I don't know what it's like to be flashing, but he found it interesting <laughs> Interesting that uh, I suggested that a few weeks ago. So thank you very much. We're in the middle of a storm here, and I just saw the lights flash, so uh, that's not too good when you're recording. All righty. And at home, he also has a 1948 Ferguson TE20 that he uh, that he uses to uh, to mow bush hog fields with, and he runs it on 90 octane ethanol free gas, and he has a 1989 Kubota B7200 diesel, and he buys 50 cetane diesel fuel from Southern states, and he also has a 1977 Mercury 115 outboard on his fishing boat, and he drives daily a 2005 GMC Sierra single cab long bed with a 4.3 in manual transmission. So that's an oddball truck for back then. 
and he's looking forward to restoring his his uh, his father-in-law's 1984 Dodge Ram Prospector in the coming years. So he's uh, as he says, he's definitely into the old stuff, and he enjoys the program. So thank you so much, Michael. Thank you for uh, rolling down the road. The American trucker is what keeps this country rolling, right? And he is a uh, a Walmart driver. All right, so that is basically what I wanted to do. I don't want to, and also, well, that's not right. I got to get my head together here. Is that um, I would love to to learn where my listeners are. So please, please, please just send me an email at hotrodfarmer at farmmachinerydigest.com and tell me where you listen from. You could go into more detail like Mike, or you could go into... There's a little detail. You just give me your name. You you could just give me your first name, and it could be I hear a meow, and it could be uh, just you know, hey Ray Hackettstown, New Jersey, and it will give you a shout out on the on the TV show, the TV show, the radio show, and the um, the podcast. So I'm really uh, a little kind of kind of still messed up a little bit here today with everything that's going on. Sorry about that. All right. So what are we going to talk about in today's show? Well, what we're going to talk about is you know. When a, I'm going to just state it this way. When a repair goes wrong, and I don't think any, there's probably, there's no one that's listening to, the, to, to this show today that is honest with themselves, honest with themselves, and didn't have a repair of, of any magnitude go wrong on you. So what you need to do when a repair goes wrong. And the fact of the matter is the more repairs you work, and I don't care whether it's a, a kitchen sink or whether it's a, a diesel engine or a hot rod or a muscle car, whatever it may be, or a lawnmower, regardless, you are going to have times when the repair just goes wrong. And what do you need to do once the repair goes wrong? I remember as a young guy when I was in college, I had a 71 Dodge Dart Swinger. I, I had a couple of Dodge Darts, that is 68 Dodge Dart, and a 71 Dodge Dart, and then I had an Aspen, a 77 Aspen with a Super 6 in it. You know, when you're a kid, you buy whatever you could get for two or $300, and we knew a lot of people that had Dodge Darts, and they were great. I mean, with the with Dodge Dart, Plymouth Valiant, same thing, but I never had a Valiant. I always ended up getting the Dodgers for some reason. And, you know, that slant six engine, then again, that A904 automatic transmission, they were bulletproof. I mean... <laughs> You couldn't kill those things if you wanted to. So uh, ended up having a lot of those. And I had the 71 Dodge Dart Swinger, which was a two-door, because my my 68 Dart was a four-door. So this was really nice. It was a two-door. And it was, you know, pillarless car. So if you rolled all the windows down, it was a, they used to call that back then, a hard top. And um, so it was a really nice car. And it the people who had it, they were two librarians. And it had all short trip cycles on it. And it never, my, my other daughter had like a zillion miles on it. It ran so much better than the Swinger. And, you know, I was a kid at the time. I didn't know what was wrong with it, but I know now what was wrong. It was all carboned up that the valves, were into the backsides of the intake valves were probably loaded with carbon. And, you know, I've done shows on that. And when you have the backside of the valve loaded with carbon in any engine, you're restricting airflow. So you're choking the engine. It's like a restrictor plate. And it, you know, it just, it, it just, it never, it ran well, but it didn't run like it should have. It never ran as smoothly as it should have, and it never did, uh, it never did what it was supposed to do, as far as that's concerned. But ultimately, it was a good car. Sadly, my father almost got killed in it on an accident. Well, the car was destroyed. Thank God he was alive. Uh, but the accident, I eighty, 
uh, just coming south of, just uh, west of the George Washington Bridge, well over there at Southwest. But anyway, so I had this Dodge Dart, and I was always a big one for maintenance. So what I was going to do was whenever I'd buy a used car, which I learned this from my dad, we would I would go through, we was, as a kid, we'd go, because we always bought used, we'd go through the whole car. So we'd check the brakes, we'd repack the wheel bearings, we'd tune it up and change the belts, the hoses, whatever needed to be done on it. And before we would put the car on the road, we'd have this car for a certain amount of time, depending upon what needed to be done, what what uh, time of year it was, what was going on. And we'd, we'd go through this car stem to stern. And then when we put the license plates on it, what some people call in other parts of the country tags, when we put the tags on it, then it was ready, it was ready to roll. And then we remember we'd go on our maiden voyage. And our maiden voyage would always be to a store I guess it was like a mod, uh, an old-time private version of a Walmart would be to Wainwrights. <laughs> I don't know why we'd always go to Wainwrights. It was only four or five miles away or three miles away but over in town, but we'd go to Wainwrights. So that was like I was a little kid. Over, was the first time we got the license plates, so I'm going to Wainwrights. I, I don't know why, but sadly, I don't think that, you know, I don't think children today for the most part will have those memories that we did if we were if you're a little bit older that you that you had growing up but anyway so we'd go through that and so i followed the same logic as i became a young became a young man a boy into a young man was able to buy a car my first car was a 69 volkswagen bug i learned a lot with that thing worked on it for months before i went on to got, got license plates on it and then so anyway so i would go through the whole car so i got this 71 dodge dot swinger i think i paid 200 dollars for it and uh, yeah, maybe yeah, probably two. It wasn't more than three, so uh, two to three hundred dollars for it. And it was, I was actually in pretty nice shape. I had some scratches and dings and dents and um, no real dents. Door had some dings and whatever was green with a black vinyl top and black upholstery. So I decided, you know, I'm going to go through it. I'm going to change all the hoses, the heater hoses, the upper and lower radiator hose, and the bypass hose. And on the, that was a 225 on a 225 slant six Chrysler because it was a higher deck height than there was three slant sixes. There was a 170 cubic inch, a 198, and a 225. And the 225 and the 198 had the same deck height. The 170 had a lower deck height. So where the bypass hose was on a 170, it was in the same place because it had the same water pump, but the deck height was lower and the bypass hose was extremely, extremely short. My uncle Chris had a Valiant with a 170 in it and I changed the bypass hose for him as a young man in high school. Then it was a nightmare to try to get it in there. I had to take the water pump off and then put the bypass hose on and slide the water pump back on. But anyway, so I changed all the hoses on this Dodge Dart Swinger, 71 Swinger, and, uh, you know, st- did, you know cleaned, all the, cleaned all the connections. Uh, back then, they didn't have Scotch-Brite. I'd use like an emery cloth and a very mild emery cloth and clean it and wipe it down so make all the, you know, all the connections and the heater core shine, the radiator, clean everything up beautifully. Back then, they used a heater control valve, right? So you had to cut the one heater hose and splice the hoses in. But anyway, did all of that filled it up with new coolant started it up and i swear to god <laughs> i'll never forget this i was so dismayed almost every connection leaked i could not believe it 
Uh, so you had, let's say, two connections at the in and out of the heater core. The upper, that's four at the radiator core, at the four upper and lower radiator. So you had four there. You had another two for the heater control valve. It's six in the bypass hose. Seven, eight. You had eight, eight connections. The bypass hose didn't leak, thank God, but everything else leaked. It was, I mean, not spitting out, but everything else leaked. I, I, I couldn't believe it. To this day, I'm still, I'm still dumbfounded by it. So that definitely, definitely went bad. And I, I you know, took everything back off, recleaned it, looked at it. You know, I would lubricate all of the fittings because you know, whenever you're doing something like this, this is an aside to it. And a lot of people don't do this, specifically if you're working like with a heater core, uh, or a rad- or even today with a radiator neck. Uh, you always have to lubricate those fittings before you put the hoses on because a lot of guys end up cracking the neck at the radiator, cracking the heater core because they're, they're jamming the hose on there. And when you're taking the old hoses off and you're going to discard them, then the best method to do is use a, use a single-edge razor blade, either in a tool or just on your hand, and slice those hoses so you don't stress that heater core or that radiator neck. And I did all of that and what have you, and it still leaked. And, and to tell you the truth, I never found out why it leaked and in so many places. So what I did is I took everything back off and I just you know, re, re-lubricated it, repositioned it on there. I put the hose clamp in a little bit different place and uh, just snugged everything back up and miraculously it all stopped leaking and never leaked again. So that was an instance where a repair really went bad and I was never able to to identify what was going on with it. Um, so when you do have a repair that goes bad, and obviously the more stuff you work on, the more chances are you to have something bad, something bad happen, or I don't want to say bad, a failed repair, and you need to scratch your head and understand why. So the most important thing the most that I could say to you as we get into this show today about, about what happens when repair goes wrong is that you need to stand back and you need to study what is going on. And obviously, it's going to be application-specific to the repair. So now, keep in mind is that I'm going to go back to the, to the OE auto industry. And, when you, and I'm going to make that as a segue into part of this, part of, part of these suggestions. You know, when every car manufacturer brings a new brings a vehicle to market and and shortly thereafter whether it's almost immediately six months or a year they have some sort of recall or something and no and nobody's benign to this american foreign what have you have some sort of recalls oh geez you know the uh, the xyz is leaking or this is failing or this is happening all right and the thing is that other than human error of not tightening something properly or forgetting to put some sort of bolt in or forgetting to weld something if it's a component failure 99.999 chances out of a hundred the reason for that recall is that is because the vendor that supplied the parts changed the specification without telling the manufacturer so arguably and i'm making this up let's say you were supposed to they were supposed to make a gasket a rubber gasket for something out of this material and that was what the design material was was supposed to be made out of. This was the thickness, everything, the specification. And the vendor goes and changes that specification and doesn't tell the the customer, which would be the car manufacturer, and sends them this gasket made out of a, a material that looks like the material it's designed to have. Smells like it, looks like it, feels like it, but it is not. And because of that, it leaks and fails. So 99 
0.9 chances out of 100 when you have a newer piece of equipment and you have these failures that are, are not, not not a singular failure, which is one an oddball thing that happened to that one, one, one vehicle, that one car, that one truck, one, that one farm tractor. But when it happens where it's either a bulletin or a recall, it's because the vendor changed something. Most of the time, the vendor changed something. So why am I telling you that? Because today, with today's industry, is that for the most part, almost every company sublets out parts. But what I'm talking about here on the show is a repair that you did when bad right, that this is a failed repair. So now keep in mind is that when you, when you are buying aftermarket parts, and especially today, and especially for older equipment and older farm equipment, older trucks, older tractors, older cars, is that there's a very, very good possibility. Well, sadly, it's more than a good possibility. It's almost... Uh, it's almost uh, uh, almost without exception, I should say, I was thinking of trying to think of a more powerful term than that, is that that's going to be made from overseas. It's going to be made from, it's going to be made in China and it's going to be made on a metric dimensioned machine. Now you may say to yourself, what difference does that make? Well, it does make a lot of difference. Well, first of all, when you're subbing something out like that and, you know, keep in mind that and I've had this people contact me over the years a number of times and I said well I bought this part from XYZ company and it usually comes from an older tractor or an older car or truck and they're restoring it or they're keeping it on the road what have you and I say I bought a, 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 a for instance I remember one was, it happened to be a Chrysler a ballast resistor and they bought it from this supplier and it wasn't it was not correct the resistance was wrong it took them a long time to figure that out but anyway and then they bought another one from an, from another supplier and it was bad and they bought another one from another supplier it was bad because what's basically happening is with a lot of these service parts and specifically i'm saying again with older equipment not if you have a 2017 or a 2018 but older equipment is that they're being sourced from one place so yes you may have bought it from ray's tractor repair or tractor uh, parts company in Hackettstown and then Joe's tractor part company in Oklahoma and then Sam's tractor part company in Oregon but they're sourcing these parts from the same people because there's not a million people in the world that are making these parts it's not like it was years ago and as an aside to this what I had learned about fifth, about close to 20 years ago now, is when I got involved with teaching for Mr. Gasket Corporation. And uh, the gentleman who owned, I won't mention his name, and it was a nice guy, but he ran, to my, to my thought of, to my way of thinking, he ran the company into the ground and destroyed it, and it's out of business. But anyway, so I went into his office, and this was in Cleveland, Ohio. And Mr. Gasket, years ago, used to make their own things, their own parts, for the most part uh and then if not it was made locally in ohio there was a big manufacturing base and that eroded with everything going overseas but the reason why i'm telling you this story is that it was an eye-opener for me so i went into his office and i said hey how you doing i'm here to teach you know so you know, we, we, we he was a drag racer also i mean he had a he had a he had a fiero that he ran i think in stock or super stock and uh, but but like it's a nice guy but um you know whatever i'll leave it at that so 
I said to him, I, I won't use his first name, I'll make up a first name, Jerry. That wasn't his first name because I, I, I have a big audience and I, I don't want to, I'm not going to give the guy a black eye if he's still alive. So I said, Jerry, what's that on you, on you over there on the, uh, on the table in your, in your office? I guess it was a veranda. He had like a veranda there, and, uh, not a veranda, a, not a coffee table, whatever. So, so anyway, it was this big catalog rack. I said, what is that catalog rack? And he proud as a peacock. He walks, oh, let me show you this, right? And it was a beautiful catalog rack. It was, I would have to say it was, it was three feet long, if it was anything, if not longer. Beautiful metal catalog rack with all different catalogs on it. And he flipped it to the, to the first, to the metal cover. So the, the first way you would enter the catalog rack. And what it said on it was China catalogs. So I said, China catalogs. And what I had learned, because I was trying to figure out how these, these companies, these off the Chinese companies were getting into all these places. And what, they, what I found from him is that they had manufacturers, reps that went around, and these reps, re, these representatives would, would represent China Incorporated. So it was China, it wasn't all the same company. And if you look through that catalog, it was a beautiful, beautiful, like I said, beautiful catalog rack. You could say you want relays, electrical relays. Then you turn to electrical relays. You want pumps. You turn to you turn to, to a section with pumps. It was different companies that made it. You want gaskets. You went and saw gaskets. You want wires. You want clips. You want hose clamps. Whatever maybe it was. And the catalogs that he had were obviously for all machinery, mechanical things. So you, so whatever you needed or wanted, it was through this one rep, and it was called the called China catalogs. It wasn't it wasn't Chinese. It was China catalogs. So the point that I'm getting at is that these offshore companies, businesses in these countries, did a wonderful job of penetrating this market of the United States and North America of Canada. So why is this related to a repair gone bad? A repair gone wrong is because for the most part just like i said the vendor changed the specification on the oe on the new stuff is that do you honestly think that let's say you're making a, a, a uh, you're buying a, a two-piece rear main seal a rope type of seal all right for an older engine whether it's a farm engine whether it's a car engine truck engine whatever it may be do you really think that an aftermarket supplier that's that's making that's making material for rear main seals is going to make a make a, a specific material for that application for a John Deere tractor versus a Chrysler Hemi versus they're going to take the same material and they're going to cut it to the proper length or the proper size and they're going to put it in a box and they're going to sell it to you and that is a and just like with the car companies when you say how can we you know how can this leak we did so much testing because the car manufacturers do testing ad nauseum and then they they come into the marketplace and then six months into the production of a new car three months into they're recalling it because the fuel tank is leaking and you send the people then the customers go what they can't design a fuel tank it's leaking already what's going on here well it's the vendor changes the specification and that is oftentimes what is going to happen to you when you have a repair gone bad if you follow the proper mechanical procedure so arguably let's say that you buy a a, a, a rear main seal 
from the store in town for an older Massey Ferguson tractor, for an older Ford pickup truck, whatever it may be, and you follow the proper protocols, the proper procedure to put the seal in, and you start up the engine and it leaks. Let's say you pick up, you buy a water pump, and you then you put the water pump in and it leaks. Or you buy a starter and the starter fails. So just so the first thing that I want to say to you is that keep in mind that if you have followed the proper procedure and the proper procedure for every for every task is a little bit different but if you follow the proper procedure not your procedure but the proper procedure and you have a failure immediately or shortly thereafter there's a very good possibility that the part that you got that you purchased is not up to quality standards and if you go back and get the same one again that there is a that there is a potential that you're going to have the same issues then this is very common today with gaskets believe it or not you buy these offshore gaskets you buy these gasket kits offshore and they they're cut properly they're cut to size they look fantastic and you put it in there and it leaks like a sieve i've seen this many many times because when you're buying a gasket the gasket material has to has to have the proper compression to it as the as it gets compressed against whatever sheet metal enclosure it's using whether it's a pan or what have you and it also has to be able to to withstand the thermal cycles and it also has to be able to hold back the material so the chemical composition of the material whether it's transmission fluid hydraulic fluid engine oil cannot be antagonistic to this gasket and so it's not it's not what it seems but now you're saying to me well hey you told me about these china catalogs right is it you know then if i go buy it there's a possibility that i may buy a gasket or a seal or something or a relay from another manufacturer from another supplier that meant it's coming from the same manufacturer and that would be correct as i told you so it's a so it's an obstacle that is very very hard to overcome with today's supply network coming from offshore and one or two companies in the world making this and if we look at what's happening now with the chip shortage they claim there's only a couple of people that a couple of million people organized companies making chips all right so so that same thing as you think as i said you think there's a million people making making uh, uh rear main seals for for uh, 42 ford pickup trucks they're not so keep so keep that in mind but the whole caveat here so what would you do in an instance like that the human nature is that and i know you're and if you're listening to the show you're probably a lot like me uh, and the things the first thing is to blame yourself just like i blamed myself when my all those heat those hoses leaked on that 71 dodge dot to this day i don't know what why it leaked but it did leak got it fixed and just repositioned everything and it was good so the thing basically is is that keep you know keeping you know blame yourself first yes and say what you and recheck your procedure but you also need to keep in mind at one particular point don't waste your time rechecking your procedure 500 times because that's usually not going if you if you went through it and you did it right and you, and you ins- inspected it again and, and it still failed or, or, or let's say a water pump if you put a water pump on an engine and it leaks out of the vent hole leaks out of the seal you did nothing wrong if it leaks out of the gasket 
where the gasket goes to the engine block or a timing cover, however it is in the application, then all right, you possibly may not have tightened the bolts properly. You may not have cleaned the gasket surface properly. You may have nicked the gasket, what have you. So you have to look at this on a case-by-case basis. If you if you if you're doing something, if you put a relay in and the relay fails or doesn't work shortly thereafter and gives you the same problem of a failed relay as the one you had before. Well, arguably, yes, you could check, you should check the voltage to it, you should check the ground to it, but ultimately, if you can't, I mean, if you can't uh, get that, if it fails, it failed, it's not you, it's the manufacturer. And it's, an, it's a frustration today, and that is one of the reasons why I don't farm with older equipment and I don't drive older vehicles. People say, oh, you should have an old muscle car or something. And to tell you the truth, I mean, I did an editorial in this for Hemmings Muscle Machine years ago, and I got into a lot of trouble with it. And, uh, and uh, I was called the, the American Muscle Car colon made in China because I was exposed to this industry. I saw, I dealt with the, with the readers, people buying parts, people buying sheet metal, and they'd buy, oh, I'm gonna redo this car, and they bought all this sheet metal, and the, 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 the sheet metal, the guy would be welding on, be spitting, <laughs> spitting like anything, because the metal was so impure. I've had people tell me that they've done uh, professional body shops that I, you know, a car restorer that I have the ultimate, ultimate, ultimate respect for, not Mickey Mouse guys, that they've done, they've used some of these, these sheet metal fenders and sheet metal doors, laid it, did everything perfectly, took the car out, the guy went to a car show, he parked the car, and I heard this from more than one person, parked the car in the sun, all right, it was hot in the sun, and then the fender tweaked and knocked the paint off and cracked the paint. And it was nothing to do with the paints app, but the application of the paint or the, or the preparation of the metal was it was junky metal. So anyway, so keep that in mind. But what can you? So don't think you always did something wrong, and also then try to get a part that's from a different. It's hard from a different source, uh, uh, or different, and and hopefully it has some sort of marking on it that you could determine that it's probably from a different manufacturer. But keep in mind, you know, a half hour into the show, keep in mind that the quality of the materials, the quality that and the proper material, that the, the material for that gasket may be fine for, for, for water, but not good for oil. So, so and, and keep that in mind. And the other thing I want you to keep in mind, which I, I touched on briefly, is that this was brought to me, brought the light to me years ago by a gentleman who passed away as they were starting to offshore parts. And the thing is that, and what would happen is that, let's say you had a, a, a Ford 9N tractor and you needed a, a rocker arm for it. I'm, make, I'm making something up as I go along here. A rocker arm for it. And they would take the rocker arm. Now, first of all, number one, what would happen is that because these are parts that are being made for older, and older doesn't need to be 40, 50, 60 years old. It could be 15 or 16 years old or 10 years old. All right, the thing is that lots of times they could not get the blueprint so what they would do is they would get a sample of it and they would and they would they would take dimensions off the sample and they would take dimensions off the sample so it would be just like you trying to cut a key from a worn key and you're blaming the key maker it's not the key maker he's cutting a key from a worn key so so that is one of the issues that comes up with these parts the other thing that comes up with these parts talking about metric dimensions is that for the for the most part with older american equipment 
it was made to English to to American dimensions, to, to inches, right? To inches. It was not made to millimeters. So the thing is that a lot, for the most part, they're taking these American English dimensions and they're converting them over to a metric dimension to be made on a metric machine. Now, if somebody's out there as a machinist, you're going to tell me I'm full of it, that, 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 that you could do the conversion, you could do the math, and yes, you can, but I'm not going to deny that. But when you're knocking out these parts inexpensively, you're going to convert. So, for instance, a 9-16 head bolt, you could get a 15-millimeter socket on there, and you could make it work, but it's not doesn't fit perfectly. So what they're doing and that's and like I said, we're not talking about NASA here. We're talking about somebody that's making parts for older equipment, service parts, and it's such a price sensitive market. And so the guy's gonna do the math and convert whatever that American English dimension is over to a metric equivalent or close enough rounded to a metric equivalent, and he's gonna make it on a metric machine. So now you're gonna have the skewing because you're doing that conversion whenever you do that conversion and then make it on a on a metric machine it's not going it may be bigger it may be smaller it's not going to be exactly the same and if you're using a model for that you're not using original blueprints if you're using a model for that and you're not, the model was worn or the model was made incorrectly you're going to have this stack up of tolerances so you go and you have your older ih tractor like like uh, like mr stout 1086 ih and you're going over there and you're going to buy a, a, a some parts for from a part supplier this is not, and this is not knocking any part supplier i know there's part suppliers for farm equipment for cars that, that listen to this show and i'm not knocking you it's not it's not your fault all right you're doing a service by trying by providing these parts but the thing basically is is that that part probably has, is skewed in dimension from what it originally was supposed to be and sometimes that's not an issue and sometimes it is an issue so keep so keep that aspect of it in mind but another common area that most people make the mistake that they make when a repair goes wrong a mechanical repair is that they either and reuse old bolts and for certain things you're not supposed to reuse old bolts like like head bolts or some engine bolts you're not supposed to reuse those they don't clean the the bolt the thread holes properly and also they don't lubricate the threads so they don't lubricate it and if they don't and if they have a torque specification they have a false torque specification because the the torque wrench is reading the friction that the bolt threads and the dirty threads and unlubricated threads are creating and it's not the clamping force of that bolt so you have to make sure and the best way on any type of machinery all right for anything that's going to be of consequence then is to run is to clean it and then run a tap through there just just run a tap through it and and clean those threads out and you know you can look in there first so if it's a water pump spray and they clean if they look clean that's fine put some lubricant anti-seize i love anti-seize compound i've said it before on the show a couple of people wrote me letters they don't like anti-seize compound whatever but you want to have some lubricity in there and keep in mind that if it's something of consequence like a cylinder head bolt or a connecting rod bolt 
that there is a specified lubricant, whether it's engine assembly lube, whether it's straight SAE oil, and they'll give you a torque specification based upon the lubricant. And also keep in mind that the threads not only need to be lubricated, but in most applications, if it's going to be a torque, if you're just tightening up a water pump, you don't have to go crazy. Put some anti-seize compound to clean the threads and you'll be good but you need to keep to put a lubricant under the head of the bolt because as the bolt starts to for instance like a head bolt starts to dig into the casting well you're going to have and this is application specific so the thing is that read the instructions that the manufacturer wants you and don't throw them away and just grab the air gun and 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 zip these zip these bolts in there but keep in mind and a lot of machinery today engines and farm equipment use torque to yield bolts tty bolts and in a torque to yield bolt i've mentioned it on the show before on a torque to yield bolt what you're going to have to do is have a torque spec and then so many angles of rotation so you need to have a torque angle gauge for that so it'll say let's say 40 foot pounds of torque and then it's going to be 15 degrees of rotation that's going to be very important but with a torque to yield bolt it's a one-time it's a one-time use bolt yes you could use it for something else to hold the chicken coop door together what have you but for its intended application so it's a one time use bolt so so keep that in mind so you really today you have to be you, you not only do you have to apply proper mechanical procedure which you always had to do all right proper mechanical procedure but you also need to be familiar with what you're working on and do your due diligence you need to look at it is it a talk to yield bolt and that's why i'm a big proponent especially over the past 15 to 20 years if not a little well maybe even 30 years because it's 2021 so 1991 would be 30 years ago which is frightening is that you really need to have some semblance of a shop manual for for anything of consequence that you're doing because they will tell you in that shop manual that don't reuse the bolt do this to it do that to it, what have you all right the thing is very 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 particular very very common but it, but another area where people have a repair that goes wrong or a failed repair is let's say for instance like they're doing a clutch and they don't machine the flywheel. There's a guy I know, nice guy, has a Ram Dodge. Well, it's a Ram Dodge, Ram, whatever you call it, with a Cummings in it, right? And he, uh, it's that six-speed manual transmission. It's an old one. And he's putting the clutch in. They said to him, I won't use his name also. And he said to him, you know, he says, I'm going to change the flywheel. So he bought an aftermarket. Well, it's an aftermarket Luke flywheel, which should be a good flywheel. But the thing is that he did not get the flywheel checked all right so he didn't get the flywheel checked for out of roundness now keep in mind that that's a heavy flywheel and what you want to do is when you buy a new flywheel and and nobody does this or very few people do it uh you buy a new brake drum you buy a new rotor wheel start with a flywheel what you want to do is you want to bring that to it bring that to the machine shop and let them check it whether they have to cut it to make it make 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 it make it make the surface flat again true again is a better word because the relationship of that to the clutch is going to be paramount how that clutch works and you don't want to do this two or three times and especially on a farm tractor you're splitting that tractor to get that clutch to get that transmission output a clutch and you want to make sure you put that in one time so if you have that out then if it have, happens to have a one-piece rear main seal put a one piece and change the rear main seal but go to the company and buy a good one right uh well what we hope is a good one 
But the thing is that when you're doing a, a flywheel or a clutch job, you want to make sure you have that flywheel machine. And I don't care if it's brand new because oftentimes that Bach, even though the manufacturer, I don't care where, where it was made, whether it was made in the States, whether it was made in Canada, whether it was made in China. So we're going to give the manufacturer the credit of saying he did a perfect job with it. All right, so the thing is that the, that flywheel, I guarantee you, has been dropped. I don't mean dropped, thrown off the Empire State Building, but the last two or three inches because it's heavy, the guy, the guy delivered, oh, boom, he drops it on the floor. And believe it or not, that is going to impact it and warp. But the same thing with brake rotors and brake drums. I know it's hard to get somebody to cut rotors today, cut drums today, all right, and I'm blessed because I have I have a friend of mine who works in a Ford dealer and they have a brake lathe, and I actually turned him on to this, no credit to me, because I would buy new Ford rotors, and I say, can you put them on, and get, can you just, you know, just give me a small, give a small cut, so they're brand new. I said, yeah, but I'm afraid that they're warped from shipping. And he said, no, I never had any problems with it pulsating. And I said, he says, but I'll do it. He says, That's not, I don't want it for free. He says, I'll pay you. Just when you get a chance, you know, run them on a brake late, right? And then I went to go pick them up. And he goes, son of a gun, you were right. They were both out a little bit. So now, yes, if I would put those rotors on at that particular point, I had, and as a mechanic, and he's a great mechanic, all right? But he wasn't aware of that. And who taught me that was Dick Hip from General Motors. And he said years ago, he's, he's gone now, sadly, but years ago, General Motors used to put extra meat on all their brake rotors, drums, and flywheels because the proper protocol was for you to turn those because they because they would be, get warped in shipping from people dropping them, knocking them around. They fall off the they fall off the skid, they fall off the skid in the factory. What have you? God knows what happened to it. So when he, when my friend cut my brake rotors, he says I couldn't believe they they were out. Not terrible, but they were out. So I said yes. And what's going to happen if you if I do this brake job? right and like as you would as a mechanic you do a customer's brake job you drive the car a couple miles there's no pulsation there's no nothing everything is fine so you think that the rotors are fine but now you're starting off with a crooked with a, with a warped rotor or a warped flywheel and the thing is that uh, you know 500 miles now a thousand miles three thousand whatever the number may be because it's already warped it's going to start to warp more and it's going to give you an issue so the thing is that so you do your clutch on your tractor you split your tractor you didn't cut the flywheel on it a new flywheel or old flywheel you didn't cut it and the thing basically you put it together it works fine but now a couple of months from now now it's not working fine now it's grabbing now it's hard to engage it doesn't want to release like i said all of these things come into a failed repair and a failed repair is no fun because nobody likes doing things twice and oftentimes it is very 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 difficult and time consuming to get that to get that to 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 fix that thing and and the fact of the matter is you don't know why it's doing that so as we get ready to close this i'm all over the map over here with this because i can't go through every particular instance right but the first thing is that you need to do a forensic analysis and i use this term but i'm big on it on this podcast i'm big on the radio show about it is that when something goes bad you know did it wear out or did it fail so did the water pump wear out so now the seal's leaking or did the water pump fail it's brand new and, and, and brand new and it's leaking all right did you know did the you, you're doing a brake job 
did the you know did, is the one pad more worn than the other is the one shoe worn more than the other right that's a telltale sign so you have to do forensic analysis you're not going to take a microscope and not you're not going to look at it you know big thing in agriculture you have a pump for a sprayer hydraulic pump if that pump fails right and you take that pump apart and you look for pitting in that pump all right, because if there's pitting in the pump and in the, in the volute, depending upon the type of pump it is or in, in the impeller or whatever it has in there, then that's showing that there's cavitation, whether it's suction side cavitation or pressure side cavitation. I don't know at this particular point, but if you put that new pump on, you're going to have the same potential problem with that. So that's something. So the first thing you want to do is forensically look at it. The next thing that you want to do is that when you when you source parts try to try and i know this is difficult i'm I, I face the same thing all right try to source the best brand parts that you can and even though you're going to the oe supplier whether it's for a car or for a piece of farm equipment you may not be getting the there's probably a very good chance that the equipment is 10 or 12 or 15 years old that the quality of the part even from the tractor dealer or the car dealer is not going to be the same quality that was put on made to the same standards as when that that engine or that tractor was made new all right but my attitude is that if i'm going to go to ford and buy a part for an 18 year old car a 20 year old car like my wife's old escort zx2 if it's still available right the thing is that that if it's coming from ford that they will have a little bit more quality control or do more of an audit i will say even though they're, they're not making it anymore that's more of an audit than than you would a real price sensitive shop a price sensitive uh product line so keep that so do your best if the oe parts are available and oftentimes and they said this before early on in the idle chatter podcast back up two years ago you know there's a difference there's different levels of oe in the car industry for instance i'm going to use ford as an example that i could go and i could buy an oe brake pads so those are supposedly the same from my wife's 2014 escape so i could go to the ford dealer and i could buy oe brake pads and oe rotors all right so that is in theory the same parts that went on in the factory then I could buy the Motorcraft line of brake pads and rotors, and that is not the same quality, all right? I'm not saying it's bad quality, but it's not made to the same standards as the OE parts were. So, the so and then, then you could go, not necessarily in Ford, then, then you go into the aftermarket. So you could go to, uh, to an auto parts store, and they have their top quality, which is not going to be as good as the OE. They say it meets all specifications, but that that's whatever let's not even go there it meets the specifications that they have let's put it that way just like what hydraulic oils tractor oil they say meets all specifications it meets the specification that they have there's a thousand specifications they have three so it meets those three all right so you so so that you're going down that way but if you can the key thing here is to source the best parts that you can and keep in mind price not price doesn't necessarily mean because you're paying more for something that's better so you have to build a relationship with a brand and you have to find something that you feel comfortable with all right the third the third aspect of it is that you need to follow proper mechanical procedure all right and whatever that proper mechanical procedure may be what's cleaning a surface checking a surface with a straight edge 
making sure that the bolts are proper bolts, that the bolts are clean. If, the, if there have to be new bolts, talk to yield. You replace the bolts on them. If you're doing electrical work, that you clean the ground circuits, all right? You look at the connections. You're changing an alternator. Look at the field connections. Is it corroded in there? Is a pin? You have to, I mean, you know, and, and I, I've, I've said this many, many times, is that the different, you know, just like a high-yield farmer, the difference between a high-yield farmer and a, and a mechanic that has the least amount of failed repairs. But everybody's going to have a failed repair every once in a while. And just like every high-yield farmer's crop is not going to go off the scale as far as bushels high-yield and win every time. But the fact of the matter is, is it's the attention to detail. And what I see today is a, is a lack of understanding in both the automotive and agricultural mechanics, the lack of understanding. They empirically know how to take this apart. They know, oh, I got to take the alternator off and there's a bolt behind there take it apart but that's that's basically it the lack of understanding and mechanical procedure so you need to apply the proper mechanical procedure and if you're running against a clock and you're trying to get this done as quickly as possible then the fact of the matter is is that you are going to cut corners that's human nature you're going to cut corners and you're going to put it together, and and you may be lucky 95% of the time, but 5% of the time you're not. But you need to determine why the part failed forensics. You need to go and you need to purchase the best parts, the quality that you can, or, or assuming the quality that you can. I mean, you go buy a brand new farm tractor for $400,000, and you think it's going to be great. I mean, and, and then it's problematic. So, but keep in mind that uh, you have to try to buy to do the best job that you can to buy the best parts, and you have to follow the proper procedure. And, uh, and, and proper procedure often means how you tighten the bolts. How many guys I see, you know, I'm, I watch a couple of these YouTube videos and the guy's showing you how to do this and how to do that. I mean, and, uh, and, you know, and like I say, empirically, they're good because they work in that stuff and they know how to get to this and where their clip is to hold it on and what have you. And the fact that matters. And every and so many people today are using these electric impact guns, they're using these electric ratchets. And, and I'm not saying that I'm against them, all right? Uh, I'm... I don't particularly use it. I don't like it. I like to be able to feel the bolt coming out. I like to be able to feel the bolt going back in or the nut going back in, what have you. And the thing is, somebody, well, people say, well, I can tell by the sound of the gun. And you can to a certain extent. But I don't know. I'm old school. I like to feel it. I'm slow poke. I mean, I'm not in a race over here trying to, but, but the thing is, it's something is so simple as just snugging bolts lightly in a cross, in a cross pattern and then still going in a cross pattern and then bringing them in up in sequence. I see so many guys in these, da, 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 da. or even if using an electric ratchet, and now, so now you're putting this, this, whatever this cover on, whatever it may be, or this water pump on, and you're doing this, and now that water pump is cocked slightly. You don't think it is. You're not going to be able to feel it's coxite because you rammed this one bolt home. So you have to try to bring all those fasteners up, up together. You need to first to bring them snug, and then go and don't and and then then at the end go around in a circle. It's, this is mechanical procedure. I mean, you're putting a clutch on. You know, are, are you going to lubricate the throwout bearing? All right. I mean, there's all these things, and then if you're rushing around trying to do this, it's not. Most of the time, it's not going to. It's not going to work out. The thing is that you know, what do you do with a wheel bearing when you take it out? 
I mean, uh, are you are you cleaning the wheel bearing? Are you inspecting the rollers? Are you inspecting the cage on it? I mean, what's going on? You're throwing it on the ground and uh, trying to wipe the dirt off with your finger and sticking some more grease in there. So, like I say, is that nobody likes a failed repair, but the elements of a failed repair is don't think because the parts are new that they're good. Don't think that the parts are new that they that they may be made out of the proper material, the proper specification, or made to the proper size. All right. If you did all the procedure correctly and the and you have a failed repair, nine chances out of ten there is something wrong with that part that you bought. All right. But uh, and then don't try to cut corners as far as your procedure is concerned, because cutting corners with your procedure will eventually, eventually bite you. And and some things it bites ease a little bit, and some things it it really really bites. And there's some there's some repairs that just fail, like my hoses on my '71 Slant Six Dodge Dart. I reap the likelihood of all of them leaking was unbelievable. All right, but it was, and I I just loosened everything back up, took it off, looked at it, made you know put it back on, relubricated, and put it, and it lasted for years and never leaked again. Who knows why? And there's some failed repairs that you will never never know the answer of why that it failed. But the thing is that to try to avoid doing that at all costs. So if you have any questions, arguments with me about this, and I'm just happy that uh, that Allie is still sleeping and didn't come on to the show with her paws, and just reach, reach out to me at Hot Rod Farmer at farmmachinerydigest.com. But now we're going to get ready for the toolbox test. And come on in, text Rabinowitz from Ripsaw Records. Yeah, righty. Thank you so much, Tex. Thank you. It's very, very nice here for singing in here. All righty. So we have our toolbox test, and uh, I'm going to read it to you and then put your thinking cap on. All righty. Winter is on its way, and the guys at the coffee shop are talking about heater performance in their pickup trucks. And actually, in the engineering, we call that time to temperature, T to T. The discussion is based on the time it takes for hot air to discharge from the duct and how to hasten it. Farmer A says that you need the engine to be at operating temperature first before you turn on the heater, but put the fan on high speed. Farmer B believes the same as Farmer A, but chimes in that the fan speed needs to be on low. If it is too high, it will cool the engine back down. Farmer C tells the others that you need to run the hottest thermostat possible for quick heat. And Farmer D instructs the others to put the heater on the maximum temperature setting with the fan on the lowest speed as soon as you start the engine. So that's in essence. So how do you get the the quickest discharge temperature in with a heater as we start to not yet approach winter? but are getting there. And like I said, I go through these toolbox tests and I invite you to the website to check them out and um, take them because they're meant to be learning experiences. Okay, so they're not timed necessarily for the season as I go through my list and read them. All right, so we have a letter here from Joe Millett and he's in Bailey, Michigan and his daughter reached out to me and uh, it has to do with parts also. So 
even though it's a lot of what I said in the show today, uh, Mr. Millet is working on this tractor right now, and he asked for me to try to get this letter out. I gave him a response, but I told him it would go on the podcast, so I'm going to just reestablish something. So it's so I apologize to the others, but it's out of respect to Mr. Millet. All right, so he says, Hot Rod, we have a John Deere 4230 using a quart of oil in one hour. Low compression, 310 to 220 pounds. Would like to know what piston and sleeve kit you would recommend. We would use M&W if it was available. Thank you for your time. I am very appreciative of your articles in the Farm Machinery Digest website. Sincerely, Joe Millett from Bailey, Michigan. All right, what I told Mr. Millett was that, you know, then again, it's based on the same theme of what the show was today, is that, you know, the... The people who put together these engine rebuild kits and what have you are not making the parts, they're sourcing the parts. So what I told Mr. M- told Mr. Miller to do in an email is that what you need to do is you need to specifically like with an engine kit, it's a little bit different than what I was talking about in the show, buying a thermostat or buying a water pump. But if you're taking an engine apart, you're buying a piston sleeve kit, bearing kit, and you're going through this whole engine doing an in-frame rebuild on it, all right, on this, this John Deere or whatever it may be, is that you really have to, to do your due diligence. So what I would I would do is I would contact a couple of suppliers that put these kits together, and they assemble these kits, meaning they grab you know, one from column A, one from column B, put them in a box and send it to you, and ask them what parts they use. And I was asking them, who makes your cylinder liner? Who makes your pistons? Who makes your bearings? Who makes your gasket? Who makes your wristpins? Whatever you're buying, don't be afraid to ask them questions. And the thing is that if they don't, if they say, oh, we make it, well, I, then hang up the phone because you know they're not making it. Well, they say they make it to our specifications. I'm not asking you, they're made to your specifications. Who makes them? And then based on, then I would say, okay, who makes them? The XYZ come, where do they make them? And he goes, oh, I don't know where they make them. Well, look on the box where, you got, where they got it shipped in from. It's going to say where it's made. So do your due diligence as far as that is concerned and try to glean from a supplier who's making these parts. And like I said, it's going to be different different person making the rings, most likely than the bearings, than the pistons, than the cylinder sleeve, all right? So you want to ask them about that. The thing is that you also want to ask them, all right? And if you could, get, you could ask, right, doesn't mean you're going to get it, to what tolerance are they making these pistons and these sleeves and what have you? They're going to tell you to the specification. So you have to try to have some finesse and find out, you know, and and, and, and say to the people, well, can you send me, and you know, everybody has this stuff digitally today, most people. So can you send me the installation instructions or the specifications, email it to me? for the, the pistons i want to know what the piston to cylinder wall clearance is i want i want so you, you, you're, you're being sherlock holmes you're trying to glean some information by looking at this right and then i would probably choose three suppliers because you need to get this tractor back out in the field you can't spend the rest of your life looking for parts for it all right three suppliers and then then I would make a purchase decision based upon who I felt the most comfortable with as far as the the uh, quality or potential quality of the parts and the other thing is that and then with it and you may find out that you want to get this guy's pistons but somebody else's bearings or whatever and then also at that particular point the price component is going to come into it if you feel they're all probably of the same quality which they probably are 
and you aren't able to glean anything that's really different from anybody else, then I would also try to glean what kind of level of customer support that you would get. And everybody's wonderful when they're taking your money. So, I mean, that's, uh, I mean, if they're lousy taking your money, that's really bad, but they're usually wonderfully taking the money in. And like I said, you're trying to glean this. You're trying to predict what the weather is going to be, right? And who you feel you'd get the best customer service from if need be. And then obviously the price component. Most of the time when you're strictly a price shopper, you get what you pay for. Not all the time, but most of the time. So those are the three things that I would look at, try to find out who makes the parts are they they, you know is federal moogle making the pistons all right you know or is joe's piston company or or the you know some kind of xyz piston company making it so the thing is to try to find that out try to find out all the parts all right and then try to glean what kind of customer service you think you would get from them if you have a problem and you know the parts industry is famous for this and and i've said this story before is that you could you could buy something from them and you call up and say I got a problem whatever with this water pump right and they say oh geez never we never we sell we sell a million of those we never heard of that problem before it must be something wrong with your engine or your, your 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 mechanic or whatever you're doing something wrong and I actually did this with a friend of mine is that we took a we took I forgot what the part was and that he did have a legitimate problem with it so he called up and they told him oh, i never heard of that before never had a problem and then like three days later four days later i called up with a different phone number and said you know i got an xyz bub i bought from you and then the guy said to me never heard of that before and then like two weeks later we had a third person <laughs> call up all right and from a different state what have you and said you know i got this and i have a problem with it right never heard of that before must be something you're doing wrong never heard of that before so that's the standard response today but sadly when you're working with older equipment, as I said, when you're working with replacement parts, it's a crapshoot how it's going to work out. And you can only do you you can only you know stand on the sideline so long and not fix this piece of equipment. So I wish you all the best. But those are the things that I look at, and I also like to listen to my gut. But sadly, today my gut has led me astray a long time because people end up being very good, uh, very very good uh, uh, phonies. And, you've, and you want people to be honest, but lots of times they're not. So, alrighty. So the thing basically here is that the question that we're going to have here is about when to get the best heat or the quickest heat. And Farmer D is correct. The most efficient means to get heat to the passenger compartment is to put the heater on maximum temperature, but the fan speed on low as soon as the engine starts. This, allow, this will allow the heater ducts to warm the engine coolant excuse me this will allow the heated ducts to warm with the engine cooling and will provide the fastest time to temperature yes there will be a slight breeze of cold air from the floor duct at first but it will, it will very quickly increase in temperature if you wait for the engine to be fully warmed then the duct will need to warm and you will be cold for a longer period so that is it listen i want to thank you so much for for tuning in today and know that the hot rod farmer is pulling for you the American farmer and rancher, and my beloved, beloved America. You have a blessed day. Be safe, and I'll catch you next week. Bye-bye.